Welcome to the Heathen History Podcast. Ben, why are we talking about the Protestant Reformation today? Well, we do have to kind of veer away from heathenry for a little bit and talk about developments in European history, which means we have to talk about the Protestant Reformation, but the impact of it would actually be very important for the development of historical thought in Europe, including ultimately heathen thought. So I'm going to have to get awfully Catholic on everybody's hiney for a while. Now, we're not going to say things like Catholics aren't real Christians, right? I got no dog in that fight. I was I mean, raised Baptist, you know, it's just kind right, of... Right, right. I was raised Methodist, but I grew up in South Louisiana, and I think everybody's a little bit Catholic. It's something, oh, yeah. it's something in the water. But uh, I do not wish to judge the Catholic or the Protestant churches. It's not my circus and not my clown's. So, so doodly do doodly do. Let's doodly go back. Doodly. Let's go we back. Take you back in time to October thirty first, fifteen seventeen. It's the church at Wittenberg in Germany, where a professor of theology at the local university, Martin Luther, nails his testes to the church door. No, 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 not testes. No, it, it says testes. Right he didn't here. have ninety five testes. Are you sure? That would because be I very thought very uncomfortable. Because Martin Luther is famous for having said, "Here I stand; I can do nothing else. God help me." And I thought he said that because he would nailed his testes to the door of the church, and no. he he had to stand right there because his no. Oh, I, no. I'm sorry, folks. I'm having a hard time reading my writing. Uh, he nailed his 95 theses, maybe, to the door of the church at Wittenberg. 95 feces. Sorry about that. Not testes. Yes. Or not feces. Okay. So, yeah, he he went and he did this on October 31st. Mm-hmm. And these were an argument against the indulgence economy. Right. Ben, what's an indulgence? Okay. The way the Catholics were doing things around the year 1500 is they have the doctrine of purgatory, where when you die, even if you don't go to hell— You have to spend a certain amount of time being purified of your sins before you are finally clean enough to go to heaven. Where do bad folks go when they die? They don't go to heaven where the angels fly. Oh, come on. Nirvana? Oh, okay. You don't know Nirvana? I I was in grad school. I don't remember very much from the 90s other than, you know, scientific journals. Okay. Okay. Anyway, so the doctrine of purgatory is in effect, and... You may have to clean up in purgatory, suffering possibly not terrible punishments, but still potentially rather uncomfortable before you can finally make it into heaven. Like watching slideshows of someone's vacation? Probably. Something like that. Now, if you commit a so-called mortal sin, that means that if you die without confession, you are going to hell. So you have to confess your mortal sins, and you're supposed to do that at least once a year. And to confess properly, you have to be sorry. You have to feel what they call contrition, which means you have to truly repent. And the priest can say, I absolve you, meaning that your sin is forgiven and you're now no longer in danger of hell, but you still have a penalty uh, that you have to pay on this earth, sort of the slap on the wrist to make you not want to do it again. That's where the the stereotypical go say 30 Hail Marys and 20 Our Fathers comes from. Right, right. The penalty could be repeating the Hail Mary or the All Our Father or something like that. It could involve restitution. If you've stolen money, then you have to give it back. It could be doing other things called the works of mercy on earth. And if you don't work it off on earth, you have to work it off in purgatory uh, after you're dead. Queen Catherine of England, who was the first of Henry VIII's wives, uh, would often wear a hair shirt as Mm. her form of making uh, recompense for her sins. Right. Which sounds horrible. Mm -hmm. And certainly in the early days of the church, you know, the, the penalties were often, you know, three years on bread and water or something like that. And you couldn't take communion until you would finally work that off. They were pretty stiff. 
So Pope Leo X decides mm-hmm. he's going to give a speed pass around this. Right. Well, there had long been a tradition going back hundreds of years of allowing you to pay the penalty not with hair shirts or repeating the Our Father or something like that, but with money, uh, with a monetary fine, you know, like paying a fine instead of uh, having to go to jail, something like that. Right. And I'll say nothing about whether this is theologically or good or not. Like I said, this is not my circus and not my clowns. But in theory, you can't buy your way out of out of sin. You still have to repent. You still have to be given forgiveness. And that's what gets you out of hell. And the payment is only a remission of the earthly penalty that you still have to pay. Hit you in the pocketbook instead of you know, the right. hair shirt. But if you were very wealthy, mm-hmm. it, it, it's kind of like, you know, the guy with a billion dollars doesn't really care that much if he gets a speeding ticket in the U.S. Right. And it turns out to be extremely easy to abuse because oh, yeah. it can turn very much into, hey, I can sin all I want to. And if I just pay the fine, I can, you know, get out of this. You know, your attitude can become like, the you know, the rich guy who anytime anything legal happens, he just Throws money at it. Throws money at it. Throws money at his lawyer and says, hey, go fix this. So this is like the Catholic Church version of the college admission scandal. Yeah, yeah, like that. But this has been going on for a long time, and you saw a lot of criticism. John Wycliffe, mm. uh, Jan Hus, and by the way, this is John Wycliffe, not Wycliffe John. Right. Just to clarify. Different, different guy. Different guy. And um, this was called yeah. an indulgence, by the way. Yes. Allowing you to work off your earthly punishment with a fine instead of with hair shirts or bread and water or Hail Marys or what have you. But back to Leo X. Right. He wants to build this new St. Peter's Basilica in Rome. And so in order to do that, he declared plenary indulgences, which means indulgence for any sin. Basically for 10 years, yeah. you can yeah, get an indulgence for anything <laughs> up to and including rape and murder. Basically, it's a 10-year it's a get-out-of-jail-free card. Right, pretty much. And you could also get it for your relatives. You could, um, you know, your deceased kin are all suffering in purgatory and they've got millions of years to go before they'll finally work it off. But if you act now, <laughs> you not only get your relatives out of purgatory, you get this free set of Ginsu steak knives. <laughs> as they said back in the day, as soon as the coin in the coffer rings, the soul from purgatory springs. So... That's why Luther was kind of like, no, no, we're not right. doing this anymore. Well, the problem was, totally aside from the theology, it was draining money out of the local economy. Uh, the indulgence preachers who were selling these things were not allowed in Wittenberg, but they were over in the next little principality you know, just across the way, and Wittenbergers would go and spend their money on these things, and then, of course, they weren't spending it on the local economy. Or and- the local church. And they'd all got the idea that they were basically buying their way out of hell. Technically, that's not the way it's supposed to work, but the distinction was lost. And I'm sure the indulgence preachers were, you know, would say just about anything in order to sell yeah. more of this stuff because it's he, basically money for nothing and forgiveness for free. Now, he his point in doing this was he wasn't trying to like start some sort of like revolution against the church. He was trying to promote an academic debate. Because what happened around this same time, Ben? What what piece of technology that revolutionized right. the world? Well, if all Luther had done is nail his testes to the – sorry, I did it again. <laughs> sorry, it's just kind of funny in a <laughs> twisted way. If all he'd done is nail up his theses, it would have stayed an academic debate right. within the University of Wittenberg. But this little gizmo had been invented uh, around about 1450 – called the Printing Press. And the first books off the Printing Press by this guy named Gutenberg were the Bible and various other religious tracts. Right. But by about 1500, there were printing presses that were putting out pamphlets and handbooks and even children's books and catechisms and things like that. And people copied down Luther's argument against these indulgences, uh, the 95 theses, and started distributing them. And they went from German state to German state, 
and spread like wildfire. And so then you have pamphlets being released against them mm-hmm. and for them. In fact, one of the most famous written against him was written by Henry VIII, mm-hmm. who only a few years later would tell the Catholic Church to go and do things and start his own church because they wouldn't give him a divorce. Right. And he actually, at that time, for writing that pamphlet that he did, was given the honor by the Pope as the official defender of the faith. Right. Henry VIII was defender of the faith until the Pope wouldn't annul his marriage. And Henry VIII, be it said, didn't start out to be a Protestant. He set up the Church of England as exactly like the Catholic Church, except he was the head and he was going to get a divorce. And it was only later that they moved into the Protestant fold. There were other Protestant reformers who were making much the same arguments as Luther, a guy in Switzerland named Huldrych Zwingli, and another Swiss guy named Jean Calvin, or John Calvin. Not a fun man. No. So Luther ends up getting excommunicated. Right. He debates his position several times, and he gets excommunicated in 1521. And he's condemned by this thing that always made us laugh in 11th grade world history class, the Diet of Worms. Diet is, in this case, is actually a synonym for assembly. Right. But it's much funnier. And it's in this town called Worms in in German. But it's funny to think of the Diet of Worms, tee-hee. So he came through this, these doctrines of sola fide? Sola fide is salvation only through faith. You can't get saved from your sins, no matter what good works you do. And then sola scriptura. Sola scriptura is the only source of authority, is the Bible, not the church fathers, not what the Pope says. And he comes up the priesthood of all believers, which basically means you don't need priests to intercede. Or saints. Yeah, or saints to intercede with you. Every believer has complete access to God. Everybody's got a God phone. Mm, what? A God phone. Okay. Sorry, that may be a, a, an evangelical thing, but basically the idea that anyone can talk to God, you can call him anytime. Everyone's got a God phone. Everyone's got a God phone. And I you see. used to have to like go to church to get a God phone. Mm-hmm. Now everyone's got one in their house. Ring, 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 the Jesus phone. Yeah, pretty much. Uh, okay. Sorry so about that. He, uh, you know, all mm-hmm. this was definitely uh, – so Luther then also published his translation of the New Testament into German. Right. Now that everybody can directly contact God, uh-huh. everybody can and, in fact, has to read the Bible. Uh, so while Luther was in hiding, he would sneak out to the marketplace and listen to the speech of the common people, and his translation would follow as closely as he could you know, the dialect that the common people in his town were speaking. The low language that we call it. Right. And, I mean, today the Luther translation of the German Bible feels very archaic, kind of like the King James Bible does for us. But don't you know the King James Bible is the only Mm -hmm. true translation of the the Bible? I also was taught that as a kid. Not Uh, my circus, not not my my clown. Yeah. Right. So um, he wrote hymns. He wrote the collected works of Luther is over 55 volumes. Uh, the guy constantly wrote all kinds of things, sermons, Bible commentaries, of course, his Bible translation, pamphlets and essays and all kinds of things. Uh, he's particularly famous for a hymn that he wrote that goes, Ein fest der Burg ist unser Gott. Ein guter Wehr und Waffen, er hilft uns frei aus aller Not, die uns jetzt hast betroffen. I don't know if that translates exactly, but I know that as A mighty fortress is our God. Yeah. Oh, you're not going to keep going. Okay. No, no. I was about ready to take the bass, but no, anyway. No, I'm good. I'm good. Yeah, that's a mighty fortress is our God, and it's kind of the archetypal Lutheran hymn. But he also wrote some other stuff that was quite a bit ruder. He got mad. There are websites <laughs> with, like, the top 20 Luther insults. I know. They're great. I particularly like, towards the end of his life, he, he'd he started trying to reform the Roman Catholic Church from the inside, 
By the end of his life, he wrote this tract called Against the Roman Papacy, an Institution of the Devil, which begins the most hellish father, St. Paul III, in his supposed capacity as the bishop of the Roman Church. And it goes on. He, he envisions the Pope saying, Silence, you heretic! What comes out of our mouth must be kept. And then he says, I knew it. I hear it. Which mouth do you mean? The one from which the farts come? You can keep that yourself. Or the one into which the good Corsican wine flows? Let a dog shit into that. You are a crude Crude ass, ass. you ass pope, and an (laughs) ass you will remain. Oh my god, I'm on the internet. (laughs) And, um, (laughs) yeah, definitely a founder of the Flame War. And may I say that if anybody's thinking about starting up a punk band, I think the Ass Popes would be a, a really good name. So Luther started out as very tolerant of the mm-hmm. Jewish people, but wrote a whole bunch of really vile anti-Semitic slanders uh, when the Jews refused to convert. So Luther, basically, he was good with them until they wouldn't convert, and he's like, you're a blankety-blank. Yeah, he, Luther did not handle very well people not doing what he told them to do. And he had been tolerant at first, but in 1543, again, close to the end of his life, he wrote this tract called On the Jews and Their Lies. And I'm not going to quote it. It's uh, horrible. It is this, you know, just steady drumbeat of insults against the Jewish people and calls for taking away their synagogues, taking away their scriptures, making them work in the fields, taking all their money. It's basically the probably one of the primary things that inspired anti-Semitism all the way mm-hmm. until really the Third Reich in Germany. Right. Well, anti-Semitism goes back quite a long ways than that, but Luther had codified it, and Luther being kind of a German hero, at least to some, had put it in writing and made it part of the tradition that he handed down. And yes, unfortunately, it would go on to inspire persecution of the Jews in some circles which certainly flourished under the Third Reich. So that's a rather nasty part of Luther's uh, heritage. So in 1525, the Duchy of Prussia, first German state that will adopt Lutheranism as its actual religion. Right. I should mention a little bit as to the shape that Germany's in. There is no country in the modern sense of Germany. What you've got is the Holy Roman Empire, which, as Voltaire said, wasn't especially holy and wasn't Roman and wasn't an empire. So kind of like the moral majority yeah, was yeah. not moral and not a majority. The Holy yeah. Roman Empire was none of those things. Uh, the first emperor had been Charlemagne, and he'd been crowned by the pope as emperor of the Romans. In the intervening 700 years... The Holy Roman Emperor was a member of the Habsburg dynasty by this time. That's infamous for the Habsburg chin. Right. And he directly ruled Habsburg lands in um, Austria, Hungary, Czechoslovakia, various other bits and pieces were under his direct and personal rule. But he also ruled over this confederation of over 200 uh, states ranging from sizable powers like Prussia and Saxony all the way down to these little states that basically consisted of one ruined castle, five sheep, and a sausage recipe. Yeah. Voltaire makes a joke about a German, the Baron of Thundertentronk, whose castle is so great because it's the only building that has windows. Hey, that, you know, back then. It's things like that. There were lots of little postage stamp-sized free cities and principiates and palatinates and uh, who knows what. And really, those have pretty much all been absorbed at this point to larger countries with the exception Mm -hmm. of a few principalities that are still around. Yeah, Liechtenstein Uh, managed not to get sucked in. Monaco. And Monaco. Well, and uh, the Swiss managed to stay independent. But, and Luxembourg too. Yes. Uh, But that wouldn't happen until 1870. Germany as a nation state in the modern sense is actually a rather recent invention. What you've got here is the Holy Roman Emperor ruling his own lands and then as the overlord of this motley collection of states that are pretty much free to run their own affairs as long as they acknowledge the overlordship of uh, the emperor. So in 1530, there was this kind of 
a comprehensive statement on Protestant theology, the Augsburg Confession. Right. And more German states started signing up for Protestantism. And I should mention that the idea that individuals could choose uh, was still kind of a ways off. The idea was that if the ruler decided he wanted to be Protestant, that would become the official religion. Right. And the Lutheran clergy would come in and the Catholic priests would be expelled and everybody was expected to start going to the Lutheran church. And if you didn't like it, you could move. And that actually caused a lot uh, – you saw a lot of war and conflicts in France over mm. that with Protestant versus Catholic. You saw it really all over Europe right. where you would have these you – know, you saw it Scotland. I mean it was, it was a whole thing. Mm-hmm. But so Sweden jumps on board. 1593, they become officially Lutheran. And Denmark and Norway and Iceland – uh, in 1665. Right. They take a little while to uh, to come to the party. It takes time for things to get there. Right. And it, it took off in uh, in Northern Europe, took off in Switzerland where you had Zwingli and John Calvin. It took off in England after Henry VIII decided he really wanted to get rid of Catherine of Aragon and the Pope wouldn't let him. And that was, of course, egged on by Cromwell and um, Anne Boleyn, who were Protestants, who mm-hmm. were through the French kind of door there because they had French Bibles and all that. Right. Well, it's actually funny you mentioned Cromwell. Uh, After him, they invited Charles II to come back and be king Mm because this whole Cromwell experiment had... Different Cromwell. Yeah. Oh, Oh, I'm talking about... I'm talking about Cromwell that was uh, Prince... uh, was Henry VIII's chief advisor. Oh, okay. Not Oliver Cromwell. Uh, Oliver. I'm talking about uh, his great, great something. Okay. Well, after Oliver Cromwell was done, uh, they invited Charles II to come back and be king. Charles II didn't have any heirs, so they brought in his brother James II. And James II was Catholic, and the British, you know, the English figured, okay, we can live with this as long as he doesn't have any heirs. And then he had an heir, so they turfed him out. And brought in Prince William of Orange from the Netherlands with his wife Mary. Yes. William and Mary. Uh, James II's descendants uh, continued to agitate for the throne. And the last of them, Bonnie Prince Charlie, uh, led a a Scottish army uh, that unfortunately was crushed in 1745. And spent the rest of his life in exile in France getting drunk and playing the cello a lot. And I mentioned that because John Ewell, uh, who we talked about as founder of the Odinic Rite, was allegedly descended from Bonnie Prince Charlie. And the other thing he was obsessed with, other than Odinism, was this lineage descended from James II, the so-called Jacobites. And yes. he was actually a member of this Jacobite society. The uh, You know where the actual, if we go through Charlie, if, or if we go through that, you know where the actual heir to the throne lives now? Where? On a farm in Australia, ah. and he had no clue until they did a TV special about it a few years ago, mm, which was okay. pretty funny. So, Ben, I just have one thing to say. We've talked about this, mm-hmm. and we're now enlightened on the Reformation. Okay. What the hell does this have to do anything with anything, Wagner? Okay. Well, first of all, one of the things that fuels the Reformation is printing, and that stimulates popular literacy. Everybody's got to learn to read. You know, tailors and shopkeepers could read the Bible and argue theology with, you know, priests and doctors of the church. So, uh, like Mm -hmm. any Facebook group ever. Pretty much. Okay. And it also made it possible to start studying ancient authors. And there was this movement called humanism. And one of the things that they did was track down, sometimes literally, you know, going into monasteries and saying, have you got any, you know, rotten old bits of parchment that you're not doing anything with? And tracking down texts of the ancient Greeks and Romans and printing and distributing those. Uh, The earliest printed books had this typeface that you can hardly read because it was based on German Faktur, you know, the very jagged black letter. But a guy in Venice named Aldus Manutius basically invented the pocket edition uh, that you could carry with you easily that was printed in a script that because of where it was invented became known as italics. Imagine that. So you have these inexpensive, relatively, book editions that are coming in. You have all of this 
old knowledge uh, that's coming back into circulation for the first time. Uh, the humanists are proclaiming ad fontes, back to the sources is what that means. Yeah, that sounds mm-hmm. very heathen. And the Reformation, now that the church is no longer under the control of Rome, but is under the control or sponsored by the ruler and the nation, uh, the Reformation encouraged nationalist feeling. A uh, fellow of Luther's named Philip Melanchthon, a Lutheran reformer, said, it is an act of piety to study the achievements of one's own country. Enter Tacitus. Ah, now it makes sense. Tacitus was a Roman government official. He's gone through what was called the cursus honorum, uh, the course of honors, starting out as a quaestor, which was Latin for uh, financial wonk, and rising up through the ranks and ending his career as governor of Asia. And he'd served under the emperor Domitian. Now, Domitian was a tyrant who was also dull. He had his enemies killed, and he didn't even do it in entertaining ways like Caligula or Nero. Uh, The story is that his favorite hobby was sitting in his study and using his writing stylus to stab flies. Well, Yeah, there were probably more healthy things that he could have been doing. And Tacitus had had to keep his mouth shut and kiss the imperial gluteus Maximus in order to safeguard his own career. But as soon as Domitian was dead, he started writing historical works, and one of them was this book called Germania, about these strange German tribesmen living beyond uh, the Roman border, living beyond the Rhine and the Danube. It's the darndest thing Mm -hmm. that we would actually have, you know, that would come back. And let Mm -hmm. me get, I'm just going to guess. So Germania comes in, and it's kind of like the... The tale of, like, the day-to-day simple German people on the Rhine border. Right, right. They're undisciplined and they're lazy, but they're strong and they're brave. They have this sort of government. The priests make a lot of decisions. They do divination with uh, symbols drawn on uh, pieces of wood. Yes, maybe runes, maybe not. Nobody knows. Yeah, and... The one thing is it was very – the way I've always read it is it comes across kind of as the noble savage. Yeah. Um, It's very – they're naturally virtuous people free from the fraud and greed and treachery who didn't need laws to live virtuously. Yeah, somewhere he says good custom among the Germans has as much force as laws anywhere else. Good manners are worth more than laws elsewhere. That's what I meant. Yes. Right. As far as anybody can now tell, Tacitus never visited the place himself. It's not an eyewitness account. It's accounts from soldiers, right? He had he knew people. A guy named Pliny the Younger had actually served the German frontier, and uh, he may have you know received information from actual Germans because there was trade right. across the uh, the Rhine. And Germans uh, had been serving in the legions for at least the past hundred years. Uh, So some of his information he may have gotten from reliable witnesses. But the whole thing is colored by the fact that he's not writing a detached scientific account of the Germans. He's writing it as a commentary on his own society. Right. Praising the Germans for their love of freedom and liberty because he'd just come out of the reign of Domitian, this tyrant that uh, whose favorite thing to do was stab flies. Now, I kind of want to tie this back to some previous episodes. Mm-hmm. This this reminds me a great deal of what we talked about in the Odinic Ride episode, where you had this kind of post-industrial revolution back to the land movement. Mm-hmm. This idea of they're clearly better, they're, they're regressed, but because they're regressed, they're better people and are more moral and mm-hmm. have their stuff together and, you know, the noble right. savage thing. Right. Well, T- Tacitus didn't want the Romans to be Germans, but he did th- seem to think there were things that they could learn from this portrait of the Germans that, that he painted. And he also wrote some things like um, made the claim that uh, the Germans were a wholly unique folk unlike any other race, and they had always lived in Germany, and they'd never uh, mixed with any other people, and they'd never 
moved from anywhere else. Uh, they were always there living on the land that they, where they still live today. Which is totally not true. It's not true, and it would get put to rather sinister use. The idea that the Germans are the only pure people who, of course, have to be kept pure. Of course. Against, well, those people. And, yeah, it would get put to rather nasty rhetorical use under the Third Reich. But at the time, there were other historians who said much the same thing about other uh, exotic peoples. It wasn't necessarily true. It was just the kind of thing you said if you were writing about the Egyptians or the Ethiopians or something like that, just a common figure of speech that Roman historians used writing about barbarian tribes. So a lot of what's in there is kind of like the movies where the Indians are all wearing war bonnets and red war paint and saying, how? Some actually did do that or something like that, but it paints with a very broad brush. And there's this very idealized kind of dances with wolves view of German society going on that isn't necessarily the truth as it was understood. And there's some things it's very accurate about and others where you have to check it very carefully. And that it, it is, it's one of those sources that you look at and you kind of have to read with a bolder assault. Right. But back then they really didn't have that same kind of critical mm-hmm. eye to literature. Mm-hmm. Well, that, that, this, that, and the other reason. It takes a few generations of yeah. scholars working something over to kind of hash out a consensus about it. And the manuscript was rediscovered in 1420, and it was first printed in 1472. And there were Italian scholars that used it to kind of diss the Germans as being, you know, even back then you were uncultured savages that couldn't appreciate wine and drank this weird fermented grain stuff, which is one of the things Tacitus mentions, a drink with a certain resemblance to wine. But it's not actually wine. But then German humanists, on the other hand, in particular a guy by the name of Conrad Keltus, really liked Tacitus's image of the Germans as being these naturally virtuous, simple, you know, honest people free from greed and free from treachery, uh, these people who didn't need masses of laws in order to live by this sort of simple, natural virtue. So Conrad Keltus, you know, goes around singing, I'm proud to be a German where at least I know I'm free. And I won't forget our many us who made the Romans flee. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, okay, I'll, yeah. I'll stop there. I'll stop there. So you have this going on. You, It's definitely a call to nationalism. Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, this guy named Anius of Viterbo wrote an entire pseudo-history of the world in which he claimed that the founder of the Germans, uh, in Tacitus, he's this figure called Tuisto, uh, who gives birth to Manus, who then gives rise to the three basic tribes of Germans, the Ingveones, the Estevones, and the, don't remember at the moment, Ones. Ingveones, Estevones, and um, those other guys. Yeah, and the thing that I I find the most interesting about this guy is to tie it back to everything else, mm-hmm. that this is the fourth son of Noah. Oh, the Hermonis. I forgot yeah. the third one. And yeah, Aeneas of Viterbo made Twisto uh, Noah's fourth son. Which, once again, ties into other things we've seen about mm-hmm. uh, kind of this uh, within certain racist factions. You have this idea that Germans or British or whoever right. are the real Jews. Right. Traditionally, the Germans were descended from one of Noah's descendants named Ashkenaz. And then somebody pointed out that if you respell Ashkenaz's name as something like Askan, and then you add V in front of it, and you assume that his sons were called the Askani, and you add V or D in front of it, mm-hmm. you have the Askani, which sounds like it could be Tuisco, yeah, which turns into into Tuisto. So yeah. the idea is that Ashkenaz was really Tuisto. Bless their hearts. Mm-hmm. Tuistoing the night away. Okay, sorry about that. And then in 1515, Tacitus's work, the Annales, is published, 
And that includes the account of the great German victory uh, by uh, Germans under the leadership of Arminius uh, against the troops of General Varus in uh, the Teutoberg Forest. Roman military expeditions had been going as far as the Elba River. Uh, basically, all of uh, West Germany was planned to become part of the Roman Empire. But this expedition under Varus was ambushed and annihilated. Three entire Roman legions were wiped out and Varus was killed. And the emperor of Augustus could often be heard crying at night, Varus, give me back my legions. Varus couldn't because he was horribly killed. Uh, So you have that. You have this inspiring example of the Germans striking a blow against Roman domination. And you have this Germania picture of the Germans as being naturally free. A guy named Aventinus pointed out that the Germans believed that God could only be sought and worshipped in one's heart. So Tuisto consecrated woods so that all could worship one God under the free and common sky. So the Germans are these people naturally worshipping God and will ignore the bit about human sacrifices and many gods. Well, I don't know what you're talking about. I'm sure that was just a scribal mistake. These are not the gods you're looking for. (laughs) Right. So that's going on even before the Reformation hits. And when it does, it's very inspiring. Because here you have these Germans who are worshiping God in the right and true way that they know in their hearts, throwing off the shackles of greedy, decadent Rome. Yes. Sounds pretty good. So... You have this revival, and you have the Thirty Years' War. Oh, the Thirty Years' War. Starts with the defenestration of the burghers of Prague and ends with the Peace of Westphalia. Yes. So we've already talked that at this time the Holy Roman Empire was ruled by the Habsburgs. Who were Catholic. Who had a family wreath. Right. Uh, not a family tree. Mm-hmm. Look that up if you don't get the joke. Uh-huh. Yep. Um, so, yeah, um, they think Arkansas is bad. Really? So during this war, they basically – you had kind of a thing where they mm-hmm. ruled a pretty good chunk of the Holy Roman Empire by right. Right. As well as they had overlordship of a lot of places. Of too. all of these 200 states ranging from sizable countries to little postage stamps of land. And for about 100-odd years, the Holy Roman emperors had not gotten too involved. They were Catholic, but they allowed – the rulers of individual states to decide what their state religion was going to be. And then Ferdinand II comes in, uh, the new Holy Roman Emperor, and he gets the idea to try to impose Roman Catholicism on the entire empire. And when a deputation of citizens from Prague met with his representatives to try to ask that they be allowed to remain Protestant, uh, they got picked up and thrown out the window literally thrown out the window. It's called the defenestration of the burgers of Prague. So the burgers got thrown out the window probably because the waitress forgot the lettuce. Now, the key thing to kind of take away from this Mm -hmm. is it really, because of just the sheer length of the war, Mm -hmm. the violence, you had 50% of the German states, the population died as a result of either violence, persecution, disease, or famine. Some places mm-hmm. lost up to 75%. Right. So there was so even— it was one of, Yeah, one of the worst population disasters in all of European history, quite possibly the worst until World War II. And, and after this, you start seeing a rise of Anabaptist, Protestant sects, other Protestant groups— who start looking for somewhere else to live. Right. And that leads to... Well, that leads to a guy by the name of Francis Daniel Pastorius. Now, the Thirty Years' War ended in 1648 with the Peace of Augsburg. and No, sorry, the Peace of Westphalia. Augsburg's different. The Peace of Westphalia, which is considered the beginning of the idea of the modern nation-state. Uh, the idea is that states should you know, have a ruler and a unified government and not have anybody else messing in their internal affairs and have this legal autonomy uh, grows out of the peace of Westphalia. But there were still a lot of scores to settle. 
And there were Protestant sects like Anabaptists who didn't believe in infant baptism who were still facing persecution. And in 1683, Francis Daniel Pastorius emigrates to Pennsylvania and founds the settlement called Germantown, uh, which is still around. And Germantown is the nucleus of immigration for uh, these Germans, uh, many of them belonging to Anabaptist sects like the Mennonites and the Amish and the Schwenkfelders and the Dunkers and some I can't even pronounce, uh, some of them being just plain old Lutherans who just decided they wanted to you know, make a new start. And that's the nucleus of the Pennsylvania German culture. So, And they bring with them their folklore and their folk magic and healing traditions, and those flourish in Pennsylvania, and that's the nucleus of the modern heathen movement, uh, Urgloiva. So, Ben, mm-hmm. do you like audiobooks? Now that you mention it, I, I'm, I'm good with audiobooks. See, our podcast right now yeah, being sponsored this yeah. episode by Audible. Is it now? It is, and I love audiobooks because I'm a crafter. Mm-hmm. I like to sew and weave, and audiobooks are great to have when you're doing that or when you're making a really long heathen road trip to go to some festival. Unless you're Amish. Well. That doesn't work out so well there. Maybe if they're in someone else's car. Oh, okay. So, and that is the really great thing I like about Audible is that they have a great selection of some pretty heathen-oriented audiobooks. Mm-hmm. And uh, you go to audibletrial.com forward slash heathen history, you can get a free month of Audible with a free book credit. So you can download one of those books. Can you now? You can. Mm-hmm. And that includes, and I'm going to promote it, our friend. Dongle McRonan. All right. And he just recently released a modern day Havamal right. audiobook. Mm-hmm. And you can download that, that as your choice. You can download Neil Gaiman's North Mythology. But mm-hmm. I would go with the modern day Havamal personally. I no- saw I saw an, an ad for that. My kid was watching this cartoon, something about gotta have them all. A different thing. Oh, okay. Okay. But it's really great. Uh, audiobooks are great if you don't have a lot of time. If you're like me, you're constantly busy, you're driving, you're picking up the kids. It's a great way to learn and listen and really get a chance to do that reading that you don't have time to do because it's because you're not supposed to read and drive at the same time. You're not? No, Ben, you're not. Oh, dang. So go over to audibletrial.com forward slash heathen history. Sign up. Get that free month. Download yourself a good book. And, you know, think of this as like the next evolution of the invention of the printing press. Ah, so once again, that is audibletrial.com forward slash heathen history. All right. So now we're going to enter Sweden. Okay. Well, we'll finish with, yeah. you know, Germany ends up completely devastated and these people have leaving uh, to found Pennsylvania Dutch culture or Pennsylvania German culture here. And there's still, even in the aftermath of all that war, you still have Tacitus remaining as this symbol of, you know, German identity. Remember, Germany's not a country in any sense. I mean, it's right. still this it's a, collection of, it's of states. But Tacitus pointed the way towards trying to define a German national identity that would transcend all of these boundaries and things like that. And it would continue being used that way up until World War II. Uh, the Third Reich used it in rather unpleasant ways, but... So now we'll move over to Sweden. Sweden, yeah. Sweden, yeah. Yeah. Bork, bork, bork. Sorry, no offense to any Swedes who might be listening. Yeah. All right. Sorry. And what Sweden was going through in the 1500s, at about the time of the Reformation, was this movement called Guttism, which translates as Gothicism. So the Swedens believed they were Goths, and they started dressing in black and singing these very depressing songs about, you know, it's Friday, I'm in love, that sort of thing. And and, and they, yeah, they listened to The Cure, and mm-hmm. they... Jesus and Mary Chain, man. Yeah. All right. Anyway, sorry, we're kidding. If you were so goth, where were you when we sacked Rome? Ah, uh, yeah. Well, there you have it. This late Roman historian named Jordanus 
had written a history of the Goths, and he had stated the tradition that the Goths had come from Scandinavia, uh, where there is, after all, one of the traditional realms of Scandinavia is still called Gotland, and there's this island off Scandinavia called Gutaland, and, well, maybe that's where the Goths came from. And The idea is they crossed the Baltic, settled in Poland, and then started drifting down into what's now the Ukraine. Hey, Ben. Yes? I find this whole theory a little batty. Ah, gotcha, <laughs> gotcha. Right, right, right. Okay. And so, the, and so the Goths had become these great rulers. Yeah. They had invaded Rome. The Gothic king, uh, Theodoric, uh, had actually become the ruler of the Western Empire after the Western emperors had petered out. In uh, The last one was, what, 472, I think. And the Goths had this great history, and they'd settled Italy, and they'd settled Spain, and um, they'd fought back the Huns at the Battle of Chalons-sur-Marne. Let's get down to business All right. to defeat the Huns. Okay. All right. and the I, He's looking at me like I'm crazy. Okay. Disney, Milan. Jeez. Okay, okay, sorry. Uh, and this made the Swedish royal family, therefore, the oldest royal dynasty in the world if they were descended from the Goths. If. Mm-hmm. Well, what do you mean, if? Well, the the uh, Monaco would disagree. Okay. Oh, right. Okay. That they're the oldest dynasty. Okay. The uh, scholars, by the way don't necessarily agree with the Goths coming out of, of Sweden. And it probably wasn't as simple as one great migration of one great people. The true picture is a lot more complicated, but this was certainly the picture that Jordanus painted. And in Sweden, it was cast as you know showing that the Swedish nobility was the most ancient ever. Uh, the last Catholic archbishop of Uppsala, uh, Johannes Magnus, uh, was finally expelled from Sweden in 1526, and he wrote this book called Historia de Omnibus Gothorum Sueonum Regibus. His brother did. No, Johannes Magnus wrote History of All the Kings of the Goths and Swedes. I thought it was Olaus. Olaus Magnus wrote Historis de Gentibus Septentronialibus. Oh, okay. Different book. Too many books. Too many. Magna, Johannes Magnus wrote this history that cut and pasted Jordanus, Saxo, and wild inspiration to establish this ancient lineage of Swedish kings going back to the first Gothic king, Berig, uh, whose name, of course, had been changed to Eric. Of course. Uh, this is why Swedish kings tend to have very big Roman numerals after their names. They got up to maybe Eric the Fourteenth or something like that. The first 10 Erics probably didn't really exist. They come out of this book by Johannes Magnus. And then his brother, Olaus Magnus, right. or Olaf, was appointed Archbishop of Uppsala, but he never got to actually do anything because by that time Sweden was all Lutheran. And Olaus Magnus spent his career in exile in Rome and he published a book in 1555 called Historis de Gentibus Septentrionalibus, History of the Northern Peoples. Very widely reprinted, uh, the main source for European knowledge of Scandinavia. Uh, the many woodcuts in the book illustrate things that Europeans had never seen before, like skis and northern lights and representations probably just completely made up of the temple at Uppsala. So oh, yeah. some information, limited as it was, about uh, Norse paganism uh, was in this book. Uh, so, so it was a, a very uh, it was very romantic in that mm -hmm. regard. Right. Uh, but has some accurate stuff in it, too, about mm -hmm. folk customs and folk traditions. Uh, he illustrates the peasants still using these long sticks called rune calendars. Uh, rune stocks or primstavs uh, talks a lot about that. So in 1630, after the Magnuses had written their books, Sweden realized that the best way to win a world war is to wait until the end and jump on one side. And they jumped into the Thirty Years' War on the side of the Protestants, and the Protestant rulers of northern Germany had been losing 
to the Habsburgs, but then France was Catholic but decided that it was more afraid of the Habsburgs surrounding it than it was of the Protestants, and they jumped in on the Protestant side. And then Sweden jumped in on the Protestant side and beat back uh, the Habsburg armies. King Gustavus Adolphus led them in a series of military victories, even though he died in one of them. But they won the Battle of Lutitz and assured uh, the survival of Protestantism in Northern Europe. And this made Sweden one of the great European powers. Yes, They even founded a colony in the New World. Uh, Fort Christiana uh, was built on the lower Delaware River, where the city of Wilmington, Delaware now stands. Yes. And in fact, mm-hmm. I am descended from uh, Johann Riesing, who mm-hmm. was one of the governors of New Sweden. Oh, cool. Unfortunately, once you're a world power, everybody stands up to take a swing at you. And the Dutch eventually took over the Swedish colony. And the Swedes had to fight the Danes, and eventually they had to fight the Russians, and they finally got beaten at the Bottle of Poltava. But for a hundred years, Sweden was one of the big powers. Yes. And such a great power must have a glorious history. King Gustavus Adolphus, who'd gotten killed but led the Swedes to victory in the Thirty Years' War, had actually dressed for his coronation as King Berig of the Goths. Of course. And... Future, future kings did the same. They looked to this ancient past uh, to give them this glorious national history. Uh, don't you mean, uh, not King Berig, don't you mean King Eric the, Victor- Eric the Victorious? Oh, no. King Berig was the first of ten King Erics that came before King Eric the Victorious. Ah. That's why Swedes have... Swedish kings have such high Roman numerals after their names. There's this long legendary Eric of, history. Eric the 19th would be the last one. Oh, wow. Okay. And yeah, the first 10 Erics probably didn't really exist, but gotcha. you know, what the heck. And I, I think somewhere in there they worked out that Berig was a descendant of Tuisto from Germania. Of course. And one of the guys who pushes this is Sweden's first national librarian and national antiquarian, which means that he collects and studies archaeological artifacts, a guy named Johannes Boreas. And he studied runestones and documented a number of them, uh, some of which have now been destroyed. All we've got is his drawings of them. And he was convinced that they held the secrets of the ancient knowledge of all mankind. A belief that's still going on today. Mm-hmm. And he came up with this very mystical interpretation of the runes that was interpreted, uh, sorry, influenced by, of all things, the Kabbalah and by this mystical uh, doctrine called Rosicrucianism. And Edward Thorson has written some on uh, that. Uh, there's a new book out called Uthark, Night Side of the Runes, uh, by a Swedish researcher named Thomas Carlson. Unfortunately, I didn't get a copy in time for this podcast, uh, but this has been of interest to some of our heathen uh, folks over on the occult side of things. Yes. So then we go to a scholar at Uppsala University right? who was pretty awesome, discovered the lymphatic system, designed buildings for the university, engineered a citywide water system and composed music for the coronation of Charles the 11th and sang it. And his name is Olaf uh, Rudbeck. And yeah, he actually sang Charles the 11th coronation anthem that he'd written. And supposedly his voice was able to overpower 12 trumpets and four timpani that were uh, playing along. Yeah. You can fit four timpani in the back of a nest in pickup truck. One of these days you need to tell me how you know that. Hmm. I was on staff at the Hot Springs Music Festival. Okay. Anyway, so Rudbeck has this kind of wonderful mind that just refuses to be confined within the bounds of specialties. It's kind of like you. He's trained. I think this guy was smarter than me. Uh, He's trained as a physician. He discovered the lymphatic system. He built the anatomy theater at University of Uppsala. Uh, He built the first botanical garden at University of Uppsala, designed these buildings, did engineering and composition and all that. 
uh, was also very interested in Sweden's great history. And he started systematically collecting artifacts and trying to read the runestones and actually invented something that you and I have used as geologists, uh, invented a measuring staff uh, that you could use to measure the thickness of soil layers and tried to use the thickness of soil layers to date artifacts. Which is a pretty, like, that. we still do that now. Right. It's not as simple as he put it as he thought it would be because soil doesn't necessarily accumulate at a steady rate, but be that as it may, he concluded that Sweden had had a civilization as far back as 2300 BC. That's kind of cool. A lot older than Rome. Yes. Enter this guy from Iceland named Jonas Rugman. He's been meaning to travel to Denmark, uh, but his ship blew off course, and they ended landing in Sweden. And unfortunately, Sweden and Denmark were at war, so the sailors were kind of locked up for the duration. And Rugman made the acquaintance of Rudbeck. And Rugman had been carrying this trunk of Icelandic manuscripts of the sagas. Which no one had seen. Mind you, Rudbeck actually had to get some of them out of out of Hawk because Rugman had pawned them to afford better clothes. Yeah. But yeah, these were the first Icelandic sagas that anybody had seen. And Rudbeck tried to come up with this scheme of using them as evidence for the legendary history of Sweden. Now, Rudbeck didn't know that most of these sagas are what we now call Fornaldarsugur, legendary sagas. They're tales kind of like King Arthur set in this legendary past. They're fairy tales, kind of, sort of. It's kind of, sort of. Some of them might have some distant historical basis. Ragnar Lothbrok, for example, probably there was a real-world version of him, but we don't know much about him. So maybe Tall Tales would be a better... Mm -hmm. There might be a nugget of truth in there that started Mm -hmm. it, but it's been embellished so much over time. Right. Well, again, King Arthur is the same. He may go back to this Romanized Britain that led some Roman cavalry after the Roman troops retreated, but we'll never truly know. So in 1685, uh, Rudbeck was able to actually publish editions of these legendary sagas. Right. They're some of the oldest printings of sagas. And there's the saga of, well, some of them are things like Thorstein Vikingsson, which is mostly just fun. But there was also the saga of Heithrek the Wise, uh, which does have a lot of very old material, including the... Uh, shield maiden Herver, who breaks into her father's burial mound to claim his sword. Uh, That's a lot of fun. And Rudbeck tried to use these as historical evidence. And they're not, but it wasn't known at the time what kind of text he was dealing with. And he ended up publishing this book, which grew to four volumes. Uh, The first edition in 1679, called Atland Eller Mannheim, or in Latin, Atlantica, where he claimed that Sweden had been the site of the earliest civilization in the world, the lost civilization of Atlantis. Of course it was. I mean, is there a country or a civilization that hasn't at one point in time tried to claim that this was the lost civilization of Atlantis in the Western world? Mm -hmm. There's been a lot of claims for Atlantis or the Garden of Eden or... Uh, Everybody knows the Garden of Eden was in Missouri. Oh, yeah, you're right. (laughs) We, we had Trothmoot close by a couple of years ago. I forgot about that. <laughs> but, yeah, it, it was this idea, and I think this kind of all ties into this whole glorification of the past, that this world power, not it's not just a world power by chance. It's a world power because we used to be Atlantis. Mm-hmm. It's a world power because we have this illustrious history greater than Rome. Right. It, we're a world power not you know, we're not by our own work, but because we have this glorious history to back it up. It's not unlike how you get a lot of religions or religious leaders mm-hmm. even who will invent some sort of like mythical past for themselves mm-hmm. to verify and validate that they are this kind of chosen glorious person or people or whatever. Mm-hmm. Well, and you get that in nations as well. Oh, yeah. You know, you have... You know, and this is well-documented history, 
but, you know, the founding fathers of America. Now, they were real people, and I'm not saying they didn't do great things, but when I was in school in the 70s, they were still presented as these semi-divine figures that were always wise and just and good and wrote the Declaration of Independence and battled the tyrant King George III and establish yeah. liberty and justice for all unless you're a woman or you're black. Liberty and justice for all white property owners. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, so you get the same thing. Countries will try to establish feelings of national solidarity by appealing to this glorious past. And here's Rudbeck doing it in spades by claiming that Sweden had been Atlantis and was basically the source of civilization everywhere. Now, he was someone who – now, he went in and supported this with the the similarities between Greek and Swedish words. Right. And he pointed out that yeah. – um, actually, this is Latin, but I think he noticed that piscis in Latin corresponds to fisk in Swedish, and the P in one corresponds to the F of another, uh, which is actually quite true. But this was kind of really before the whole concept of some sort of Indo-European, proto-Indo-European language, ancestry, migrations was really a thing. Right. But, I mean, the similarities that he noticed were quite real. There are similarities between Swedish and Greek. He didn't interpret them the way we would now, but he, he sounds like a crackpot. But he wasn't. He was one of the smartest men in Europe at the time. And pushing the evidence as far as he possibly could. And in hindsight, it looks like some of his conclusions were comically far off. Uh, But for that time, he made a very strong case and assembled a lot of evidence that was about, you know, it was as solid as you were going to find at that time and place. It would take later generations to find more sagas and dig more artifacts and ultimately correct the picture. Right. So essentially his whole – what he did was he he made the best deduction he could with what he had at the time. Mm-hmm. Right. And there was bias and influence on him, sure, but, mm-hmm. you know, he – Well, there, there is on all of yeah, us. Yeah, there is on all of us. Mm-hmm. So – And his little anecdote here. Yes. Um, his son became a professor after him. Uh, even though his home was destroyed in a terrible fire in Uppsala and he lost all of his manuscripts and library and everything, although his book Atlantica still survived, and he died soon after, his son also became a professor and became a close friend of another professor of medicine at Uppsala by the name of Carl Linnaeus. Linnaeus rebuilt Rudbeck's old botanical garden uh, Linnaeus is the one who came up with the way that biologists name and classify species. If you've ever been a, in a biology class and had to learn kingdom, phylum, class, order, family, genus, species, yes, you have Linnaeus to thank for that. He's the founder of biological naming. And Linnaeus named a lot of plants, and one of them was in honor of his friend Olaf Rudbeck the Younger, and his friend's father, Olaf Rudbeck the Elder, the guy who had written uh, Atlantica, and he named a genus of plant uh, Rudbeckia. And Rudbeckia hirta, to this day, is the Latin name of a very familiar flower called the Black-Eyed Susan. Nice. So if you've seen these daisy-like flowers with brilliant yellow petals and black centers... You're seeing something named after the guy who thought that Atlantis was in Sweden. So he did one other thing that Rudbeck did that I think is very important when we're looking, especially towards heathenry, is he did, he was one of the first to really collect a lot of folk customs, Mm -hmm. which folk customs, religion can change, but folk customs tend to live on. Mm -hmm. And that I think is, especially collecting them from the peasantry as opposed to the nobility and the gentry. Mm -hmm. Right. The scholars at the time would have been, you know, said things, you know, why do I want to deal with the peasants? They they smell bad. They would have considered it beneath them. Uh, Rudbeg actually went out and talked to them. Uh, one of them who he claimed, you know, had the very face of Thor and 
peasants at the time used these uh, about yard-long pieces of wood uh, carved with runes as calendars. And you could compute, you know, the appropriate days for church holidays and things like that using these rune calendars. And Rudbeck was astonished to find that, you know, these peasants are doing this stuff that is as sophisticated as the astronomy that his fellows were teaching at at Uppsala, that they had this sophisticated traditional knowledge. And he was one of the first to recognize that the peasants might actually have something to teach uh, the scholars. You know, and that is something that I think people still look at and, and study today because we don't have a ton of documented use of the runes and that is one of them that I've heard a lot of people talk about. But he definitely did go a long way in kind of bringing this past back into the, at his time, modern attention. Mm-hmm. And really, both all of this, whether we're talking about the Reformation, Sweden, Germany, these are kind of the first blips on the radar that eventually lead to the heathen movement because these go in to inspire then the romantic movements, mm-hmm. which, yeah. you know, it all snowballs right. into what we have now. Yeah, Sweden would kind of decline from being a great power after the Russians beat them at Poltava in 1709. But the idea of this glorious Nordic past would persist. It would get revived in the 19th century Tacitus's message of German freedom uh, would go on to inspire Germans in the 19th century in a lot of different ways, some of them very positive and some a little bit less so. And we'll talk about those in later episodes of this podcast. We will. So what else have we learned today, Ben? What, what, what should the important takeaway from this be? Read old books, but do it critically. There you go. You Mm -hmm. heard it from the man himself. Be careful about trying to draw grandiose conclusions out of incomplete data. Yes, that too. Mm -hmm. Um, Anything else you think that we should emphasize before we sign off? Get involved in lots of different things. You never know what you'll learn. Oh, okay. And take some time to write music for a coronation. Yeah. uh, Mm -hmm. If you you want to write one for mine, I'm going to eventually take over the world. Okay. Well, you're already, you know, she who must be obeyed in our own kindred. Exactly. It's just, just, I don't know if we ever had a formal ceremony or you just, you know, I just took over. Okay. It's a benevolent dictatorship though. Okay. Yeah. All right, Ben. So where do people, if people want to find us, where can they find us? Uh, Yes. If you want to find us and especially if you want to support us, Uh, You can visit our Patreon for sneak peeks and special gifts and access to our exclusive Heathen History Facebook group and more. Very exclusive Facebook group, darling. It is. At www.patreon.com slash heathenhistory. Uh, We are on pretty much all the social medias. You can go to uh, facebook.com forward slash heathenhistory, at heathenhistory on Twitter, and I have actually just started this up at YouTube as well, and our podcasts are going to go up on YouTube as soon as I finish rendering them because it's a lot more difficult than I thought it would be. You're not going to have pictures of us on there, are you? No. Okay, I, I do want people to watch this. Yeah, and it's kind of how I feel about it. You've already seen my face enough on other things. But always, our show notes, our sources, we do back up what we say, are available on our website at heathentestry.com. Right. Our theme music is Happy Viking by Rolar Music. For the Heathen mm. History Podcast, my name is Lauren. And I'm Ben. Wassail, y'all. y'all.